David A. Price presents... folks welcome to marvel noise episode 407 i'm your host steve raker here in the comic book bunker with wwx kevin and andrew the la rabbit debating the ethics of bringing this thor clone online you know what could go wrong right let's call him clor <laughs> we need every goliath we can get steve marvel noise is the semi-monthly podcast proudly sponsored by nobody now in our 16th year, our scope is all things Marvel, and uh, like even epic comics count if we feel like it. You can find, listen to, stream, and download episodes past and present over on marvelnoise.com with that handy little calendar-style menu on the right-hand side that pulls down. You can go back to past posts that have been cleaned out of all of those outdated new releases and previews posts that made it hard to find old episodes. You can get new episode announcements, give feedback and see images and cover galleries on our Facebook and Twitter pages, and also find other fine podcasts from our pals at the deliberate noise network on the deliberate noise network. That includes indie comic book noise, our sister show where Andrew and Kevin and guests could be Phil. Mm. Could be me. Could be some Australians, for Christ's sake. <laughs> hey, they're part of it. And that's where we talk indie comics. So wait, if Marvel Noise covers everything, Steve, where's our in-depth Malibu segment? <laughs> oh, it, it could be coming. I think you just spoiled the April Fool's episode. <laughs> as long as it's the ones that have Warlock and the Avengers and stuff. As long as it's written by Fred Van Lanty. This episode, though, we've got some old stuff and some older stuff with a focus on the super villainy going on in these Marvel tales. But oldest first, because that's how we roll around here, even after 15 years, right? I'm rolling around all on these comics. <laughs> hey, a uh, uh, hero's only as good as his villain, Steve. This is true. And you may or may not know, I mean, you do, if you listen to episode 405, that I've been in the middle of, like, going back and reading material in the old Tales to Astonish title from the 60s, specifically the Submariner stories from issues 70 to 101 that ran for two and a half years from 65 to 68, when it was a split book between the Submariner and the Hulk, with each character getting a 12-page like serial style tale written by Stan. And so I'm reading the subby stuff and, you know, I can't help but skim the Hulk pages, right? Although by and large, it's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> oh, Steve, you're, you're really sugarcoating it a little bit, but yeah, <laughs> go on. <laughs> there occasionally is Bill Everett art. So, you know, that, that always makes me smile. But I come across this dude in this outlandish, like, silver centurion costume, and it turns out to be Boomerang. Of course, I had to get Kevin and Andrew in on this. 
And then, much to my delight, it turns out to not only feature the villainy of the Secret Empire, but it's their first appearance, too. <laughs> Plus, the story crosses over with the Submariners feature, like in the same magazine, where they, they both go to this movie house and watch like the newsreels, but it each it's told from each of theirs point of view instead. I had to check this out. Years back, Super Steve, um, I was inspired by our longtime Thunderbolt segment. So it was a new comic book store. I was out, out somewhere deep in LA that I'm not normally scrolling through the back issues and found Tales to Astonish 81. And I was collecting first appearance of like thunderbolts and related characters so i actually picked up this uh a ratty copy of issue 81 years and years back because you know had to get that early thunderbolts but it was interesting reading like the subsequent issues to because i only bought that one there and then now i've had a chance to read the rest of them to see the first appearance of fred <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's quite a scene. I don't know why you throw balls and have circles and everything on your costume if you're boomerang. He even remarks, just in case, you didn't know. And I'm like, no, dude, I didn't know. You you weren't giving off the boomerang vibes. I also love late 60s Marvel because it's unsure if it's my issue or the coloring or what, but he's purple on the cover and... Sort of a reddish orange yeah, in the thing. No, that's 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> These stories are from Tales to Astonish eighty one to eighty eight, uh, in sixty five and sixty six. And for me, I was really happy when I saw the Secret Empire here because they're always fun, right? They're a bunch of hooded guys who are referring to each other as numbers. They're always bickering and like trying to, you know, ascend. And I'm not a number. I'm a free man. <laughs> this time they want to steal like a Kirby Tech missile bomb thing that Thunderbolt Ross used against the Hulk. And one of the other guys is like, well, why don't we just get the Hulk? And he's like, quiet number three. We're getting the bomb. That's already been decided. <laughs> like they're They're always trying to one-up each other or having a reason to, um, uh, you know, defend their position against each other. It, it's pretty funny. So they call upon one of their agents for hire, who is Boomerang, making his first appearance, and he is a player. I can't I thought... believe his origin is done, like, offhanded by someone else in one panel. But they don't that. even go into it. But it's I thought all that there. was so well done. Like they <laughs> drop everything and want you know he's well. First of all, by his fancy dress, you know he's successful, and then you find out by his date that he was a pitcher who was suspended, and he was super talented. He could have been the greatest, and then yeah, I thought that was a genius because I have some less than positive things to say, so I might as well say I love that super quick. That's all you need to know. Like, you got it all in a panel. Yep. And this issue and most of these issues are, uh, at least at first, are featuring Jack Kirby layouts with Bill Everett finishes. 
And some of the faces, especially on the human characters and the side characters and stuff, are so great. And even the Hulk's face is really good. But where Kirby likes to leave big open spaces free of any musculature as his, his you know, shorthand for, um, you know, being big bare-chested and, and muscular, um, that doesn't fit with, like, Everett's kind of tighter style. So... Um, it's not the well, best match. Well, plus, uh, Stan's apparently getting paid by the word in these, yeah, episodes, for sure. these things. So, holy cow. And some of those words are of less than stellar quality. So, Boomerang's plan is he's going to kidnap Betty Ross, the general's daughter, and ransom her for the missile bomb thing on behalf of the Secret Empire. And, I mean, he makes quite a scene when he attacks that that suit, you know? And like you said, Kevin, he's, he's like pulling off his buttons and throwing them. And yeah. it reminds me of that that old candy, Andrew, that were like the drops that on, on the white paper and you'd have to peel off. <laughs> and like the paper would be pulling as you're pulling the little hunk of dripped candy off of it. To me, these look like um, explosive certs. Yeah, yeah, but it, but his tunic like pulls when he's got to like pop yeah. them off, you know, and then and then throw them. Or is it spinning tops? Like, no, I thought that's... they were like uh, giant washers, kind of like slugs you yeah, use yeah, in a that. video game or something yep. like that. Yep. That he and they, but they have some kind of explosive characteristic and a magnetic characteristic, yeah, and I so mean... he can aim them with the equally devastating effect and it is effective he he can slice the steering wheel off a jeep and slices down the barrel of a rifle he takes out a bunch of dudes by the knees and then knocks stones out of talbot and rick jones's hands tackles betty and as he escapes finally chucks his first boomerang like it's a mic drop with a name drop boom of time and flies off wearing Self-proclaimed outlandish jet boots. <laughs> oh, come on. Steve, his description of the boomerang is what killed me. It may look like an ordinary boomerang, but carries a blah, blah, a charge. It blows up. Oh, look, it's causing a rock slide. And it's returning to him like an arrow. You know how arrows return to you, Steve. That's how. Hey, if Unlike you... boomerangs, which don't return normally, it's arrows that return to you. And I'm like, oh, Stan, maybe... Uh, script a few less books this month and a little more time on it. <laughs> Issue 82 of Tales to Astonish has the uh, Secret Empire of course bickering and number five dies pulling a switch when this gas gets released. And It also reminded me of like a Taskmaster thing where they're all vying for a position and then yeah. they would just like do things to each other the rest of the gang surmise that it's got to be number nine who's behind all this right and we got to stop him from becoming number one he's always wanted to ascend the secret empire i love they're great and then at least in my copy boomerang has now turned purple yeah i should probably <laughs> have turned into the Marvel Unlimited to see how they it treated is. the color. It, you no, know, it goes it goes from the red to red and white to the purple and white. Yeah, Boomerang with Betty flying away is 
they just come across the Hulk and the, while they're in the air. That's and, bad luck. And the Hulk's like, hey, Betty. And then now he's chasing them. And finally, Boomerang's like, I can't keep this up. So he stops and he fights. That doesn't go so well. And then ends up taken to the air and he's getting chased again. He's got those powerful leg muscles, Steve. That must have been written 10,000 times in Hulk comics. His strong leg muscles as he leaps everywhere. Should have called him the kangaroo or something. When push comes to shove, by the end of the issue, he gives the Hulk Betty, acquiesces, and escapes in the Secret Empire's helicopter. Yeah, but they're not going to take failure lying down, Steve. This is the secret empire. In Tales to Astonish 83, in the Submariner section, that has art, Jack Kirby and Vinnie Coletta, the plot lines cross over a little bit as number one from the secret empire, who we don't, haven't, haven't seen with the rest of the gang. He's in the city, and he's following after Namor in a hovercraft, guys. The Secret Empire, they've got their little mm. hovercraft right from the beginning. He's got his little hover bike. And when Namor's down after a battle, number one hits him with a lobotomizer ray and takes over his mind. Then in the Hulk feature, with the Kirby Everett art, the Secret Empire is telling Boomerang, you know, you failed. That's not too good. So he decides he's going to make good out of all of this. And you guys wanted Betty to ransom her for the bomb. I'm just going to go after the bomb thing directly and attacks this military base. I think that's smart because he knows that Ross is going after the Hulk because that's his, you know, whole bit is always going after the Hulk. So I like that he's like, oh, thinking laterally, you know, all I need to do is get in there and steal that. And I'm back in good grace because this is this is his last job. If he gets this, he retires. So this is it. It's always one. There's always that last job. Andrew. Yeah, that sets you up forever. He's still talking about that last job to this day. Better yet, though, is the Secret Empire's portion of this story because Mm -hmm. they are at a at a meeting and well number one isn't there and number five isn't there because he's dead but number nine gets called out for his shenanigans and he drops a grenade on on the assembled group and kills them all no more numbers he had this armor on underneath including under his hood (laughs) (laughs) so now it's just him and number one left in the secret empire i always wonder who promotes the next like don't the people that promote you know who you like (laughs) or is it some kind of secret nomination like suddenly steve you just get an envelope and now you're number seven for the secret empire that's when you pick up your mail in the next issue, number 84, in the Submariner portion, written, or, it's all written by Stan, and this one has the art by Gene Colan with Dick Ayers, we've got number one controlling Namor, and he orders him to take out the Hulk, right? So now these things are going to cross over and everything, and, and they're going to fight, but no, he doesn't. He never does, well, eventually he does 30 issues later. 
But he doesn't at all in this story. He breaks free of number one's control. Womp womp. But it was oh, cool well. that they crossed over a little bit, and number one was kind of busy <laughs> with him. Well, okay. the saddest part is the we wrap they wrap up the boomerang storyline with the Hulk sneaking into a movie theater and watching a newsreel. So we don't even get like the full fight between Talbot and Boomerang. Like it oh. leaves off on a cliffhanger and then we get Hulk doing the Ben Grimm thing with the overcoat. And, and like what, who's stocking like an overcoat for like a seven foot, 400 pound guy. <laughs> right. In 1966. Or well, there's a, at the same theater, there's a naked guy with wings on his feet doing the same <laughs> thing. So maybe it's just one of those theaters like in, uh, you know, in the village maybe. Um, but uh, it's pretty funny. What, what, what I like about the news feature is it is a quick way to show that Boomerang is once again outsmarted and doesn't succeed in his mission. But this time it's by Major Talbot, who's like, I'll just blow the bomb up rather than let you get it. And he's like, oh, I didn't think of that. All right, <laughs> I'm getting out of here. Yeah, I just wanted to see more Boomerang, Steve. I'm on board like the guy in the letters column that was like, hey, Boomerang's great. Well, we'll get a little more. But first, there's some Secret Empire in Tales to Astonish 85 in the Submariner part that's drawn by Gene Colan with inks by Bill Everett, Submariner's creator. Number one is shown in his, his apartment freaking out because he's, <laughs> he's the last one, and pun intended. Namor is not under his control. The rest of the Secret Empire has been all blowed up. The Hulk seems headed his way. Kevin, he was just this unknown scientist. He only wants fame and fortune. He just wants his, you know, he's been forced into this anonymous position in the secret empire. He can't even show his face. If he could just, you know, kill the Hulk, then he would be remembered. You know, his, everyone would know his face, right? Uh, Sure. So maybe next time wear a tighter fitting dress would be my advice. <laughs> like Bugs Bunny dressed up with the yeah. makeup trying to lure Elmer Fudd. But so number one sets a bomb trap because the Hulk has to be know that he is where he lives and is coming to his apartment. Spoiler, he doesn't. <laughs> he's just nearby crawling up the building for a different reason. And number one sets this bomb to go off and as he's trying to leave his apartment his cloak gets stuck in the door and he can't rip himself free because like it's bulletproof Kevlar that's been woven into it and everything and boom the whole thing goes off the building collapses and he's left a mangled corpse with the first responders commenting to each other that it's a shame we'll probably never know who he is because from the looks of things, I'd say he's burnt pretty much beyond recognition. <laughs> so he's <laughs> denied the very thing that he had seeked most of all, which was to be known. Oy. Well, if you well, know anything, Steve. you don't have these elaborate cowls and capes. <laughs> and you know that two know. sticks of dynamites are going to kill the Hulk for sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, it would have worked. Even... <laughs> He had to know that the Hulk's pretty tough, man. It's going to take more than that to take on the Hulk. But I do like how they keep going in the Hulk section with the missile plot line, but it's a new character. Well, but, but, but was it supposed to be, or is this Stan 
getting mixed up with too much workload again, because Rick Jones drives this suspicious car to New York City that this balding cigar-smoking guy wearing a Hawaiian shirt sets him up with, and he knows about the bomb. And it's a plan involving the bomb. He's got all this high-tech stuff hidden in his apartment. I'm thinking that this was number nine because like we don't know what the last we saw number nine threw the bomb on everybody and he survived he had the armor on but then we don't see anything else of number nine so i thought this was number nine out of costume out from under the hood striking out at new york city with with the bomb through rick jones inadvertently bringing the device that controls the bomb into the city limits in the car I never see number nine taking off all that armor, Steve. He's too paranoid. <laughs> He's wearing that thing to the back. He's like the ghost from, so from when Thunderbolts. He, and even when the FBI bust in and arrest him and call him Gorky, a Russian saboteur, I'm still thinking he could still have been number nine in my mind because we really don't hear what happened to him from the secret empire and if you're reading comics we don't hear again from the secret empire for like six years until amazing adventures 15 in 1972 in a beast story where the secret empire makes the griffin for the first time uh, as an agent of theirs so what happened to number nine's seemingly successful bid to take over as the new number one it turns well, out... I mean, they lost some uh, money, too. You know, I mean, all the their little bases getting blown up. And, you know, they probably had to pay out uh, death benefits to the spouses of number two. <laughs> but number nine had a big moment there where he took the rest of the gang out. And then we never saw from him again, which was really weird. But in the spring of 1974, in Captain America 175, during the Steve Englehart Secret Empire's number one is really the President Richard Nixon storyline that makes Cap all disillusioned and he puts down the shield and becomes nomad. This takeover scene of number nine taking over the group gets retconned that Gabe Jones, one of the old Howling Commandos turned shield agent, infiltrated the group and was also armored as number six and after the dust cleared he took out number nine and infiltrated the secret empire further waiting for this moment until cap 175 when he could take off his hood along with peggy carter and help cap in his time of need crazy just think of that laundry bill but how weird is it that the secret empire wasn't used for like six years and then this scene wasn't resolved for two more after that well that's why steve if you're ever in one of these secret just look for the guy that's keep trying to turn up the air conditioning that's the one wearing all the body armor so that's how you know <laughs> but that's part of the fun of going back and finding these old tales and and some of these first appearances and things and thinking where did they go from here to where we know them today it's funny in tales to astonish 86 we get art from big john buscema and mike esposito on inks as mickey demo who i can do without 
but this has Boomerang showing off a slightly new look and weaponry that he claims is now capable of taking on the Hulk, but pretty much just seems the same to me as he uses slimmer boot jets to fly through uh, a ring of fire. It's quite a training session. Wait, so you don't think that they're deadly, his miniature discs are deadlier than before, or that he improved his skill with his boomerang? And I like how he calls them whirlwind discs now. Kevin, did you like that? Or did you feel it was trademark infringement? Uh, it's, it's getting pretty close to trademark infringement there. Then in issue 87, the Ring of Fire must have ended badly because in a deja vu move, Boomerang shows off a yet another set of new upgrades and yet another new costume, but again, just slightly. I mean, this guy, he's got the new helmet now. He's His rhinestones aren't just bedazzled on his sleeves. Now he's got them on like a sash. And uh, back to the red and white. Pretty fun. This also just seemed like just a lot easier. Like the helmet was simplified. Yeah. By putting yeah. the the bands in, that gives you a consistent place. And the boomerangs in one spot. Like... It's just easier to track. I'm sure this was decided to be like, I'm tired of drawing all this nonsense and flash. Let's keep it simple, designed. The boot jets now are just little jets on the boot. It's like, I just think I don't have any problem with it. It's going to make the art team's life easier. Love, and it wasn't like that other design was so iconic that we. Yeah, well, it. I love the panel at the top of the page of him throwing the other tunic away that has the, the, the things on the sleeves. And he's grabbing the one that doesn't have the things on the sleeves of <laughs> the shirt. He's like, I don't want to be a pirate. And he's like, get rid of that shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but he still wants to have that giant B on his chest. He does. And he's a lot bigger bodybuilder type than I would have thought for a baseball pitcher. He looks more like a home run hitter. He's been in training. For those traps. So Boomerang seeks out the Hulk to pick a fight. But the Hulk has been fighting this pink bubblegum android thing for like two issues. So Boomerang decides to grab a cliff bar and hang out and wait for Hulk to finish up and turn back into Banner. And then he'll pounce. Always love the leader with his little pink, different, little dumb android attacking monsters. Those were always the best. They were like fun and plasticky and some were big and some were small and it just always gave the Hulk a hard time. This time it's just one of them instead of like the, I kind of like it when it's the whole army of them. So this whole Secret Empire boomerang first appearances storyline thing finally concludes in Tales to Astonish 88, released the very first week of 1967, and it was a few weeks late, so there was actually no December 66 issue. This one features Hulkitudinous pencils and inks by Gil Kane. Which I guess now we know why really? it was late. Do we really think this was Gil Kane? <laughs> this looks like it was not the Gil Kane some of us are more familiar with. We can say that. This is rushed Gil Kane for sure. <laughs> There's some good stuff in it though, but not much. Boomerang gets tired of waiting for Banner and starts he starts like poking at the Hulk from a distance, getting them all mad on a crowded street, so he you know, starts striking out. And as the Hulk goes bounding off with the public opinion turned against him again, and 
<laughs> sure enough, it was moments before he was going to get a presidential pardon if he had just kept his cool. Boomerang follows him and hits him with a powerful tranquilizer that slowly weakens him and starts turning him into Banner. Yeah, I don't really get the let's punch the Hulk thing. Like, at what <laughs> level do you think that's like a regular person? Pun Aren't you just going to break your hand more likely than anything else? Wait for him to turn to Banner. That's a good plan. But they're now lying, the Boomerang and the Hulk are lying at the basin below a dam. Ooh. So Boomerang ruptures it, so it's going to drown the Hulk while he you know, flies off to freedom. But the Hulk smashes some rocks and the debris or the concussive force or whatever, shockwave, knocks Boomerang into some rocks and he breaks his leg and he can't fly out of there. So he turns to pleading with the Hulk to rescue him. Come on, man! You're the only one who can save me. So the Hulk, while he's turning back into Banner, is trying to climb out of there and carry Boom uh, Boomerang. And uh, Boomerang doesn't make it. Oh, not like Maybe this. Maybe a backup Boojets. Don't worry, Steve. Uh, Boomerang's always come back, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he didn't come back for another doing the math here uh 10 years it wasn't until 1976 in the pages of iron fist's first title issue 11 from the shadows and then issue 13 full on where he returned in the john Byrne redesign you know the purple and light blue with the boom you know oh that's so good yeah, that's why I think he was waiting. Was he needed someone to give him a better outfit? Justin Hammer you know, he, was he the didn't, guy. He didn't even like his existing outfit <laughs> during any iteration. So yeah, he was ready for a for a more boomerang centric outfit. Can we say he, he threw it in the trash and then he walked away and, until he could find a better tailor. Less uh, less focus on your metal discs, on your whirlwind discs, and more on your boomerangs. Crazy. Or maybe Whirlwind sent him a cease and desist on the Whirlwind <laughs> Right? Yeah. Crazy, though, for the, for this to be Boomerang's introduction into the Marvel U and the Secret Empire's introduction into the Marvel Universe and then have both toys put down for so many years, pick back up in the Bronze Age, and uh, run with, right? That they're still around to this day, the both. Yeah, and but I really did like the fancy Flash, like he's an upscale villain, you know? It's nice compared to so many of them that are either regular robbers or frustrated scientists or whatever. <laughs> All right, now for some better comics. Into the Bronze Age we go. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. Number nine, number nine. Andrew is here. Number nine. Hello. Kevin is here. Hello. <laughs> and we've got two story arcs for you that actually turn out to be the last two Bronze Age appearances of the Frightful Four. The first. You shouldn't save this for a Halloween, Steve. 
The first is a crossover that begins in Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man number 42 and ends in Fantastic Four number 218, which came out the next week at the beginning of 1980. And then almost a year later, the second is in Amazing Spider-Man 212 to 215 at the end of 1980 into early 1981. Intrigued? Let's hit it. I think this is a deceptive cover. <laughs> that it is. Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 42 in December 1980, was written by Bill Mantlo, with art by Mike Zeck and Jim Mooney. Kind of neat. And the Peter Parker... Spectacular Spider-Man title was supposed to focus more on Peter's life in grad school at Empire State University, so it allowed for like a different non-Daily Bugle supporting casts that included yeah. Deb Whitman. Yeah, one of those things I definitely noticed in these is they they have... They introduce all these guys. Oh, he's in the class. And this guy is this guy. I'm like, wow, there's characters in this comic. Awesome. Right? And poor Deb Whitman, right? Like, I know. He, he already, already has to see her. She, she has problems. Yep. And he's got to ditch her already, like right when she needs a hug. Yeah. You know? It's like, later. The old classic trope of like, yeah, just put put her in glasses. That tells you everything you need. Oh, no. <laughs> Now I'm just thinking of that cover of her with the glasses and all the little Spider-Man bouncing all around like little gremlins. So, actually, it really starts in two issues earlier at the very end of Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man issue 40, where there's an almost splash page at the end of the issue. And it's really nicely drawn. It's Frank Springer pencils, but with Ricardo Villamonte inks over it. So it's got like this dark shadowness to it that you're not used to seeing with Frank Springer. It's it's pretty good looking stuff. But what it shows is the Frightful Four finally getting another teammate to round out their foursome. So you've got the wizard always right and sandman and the trapster and now they've recruited electro into their ranks and they're out to get electro yeah they want to get spider-man and the fantastic four like they're two nemesis yeah well look his mask is kind of like medusa's hair (laughs) (laughs) well i was thinking shouldn't they have got another woman on their team then oh they tried that over and over again kevin (laughs) Thundra and uh, you know they tried even Tiger at one point and eventually they'd go to Titania and yeah this one has a fun though they decided to be uh, color coded teams like the wizard and his lackey paste pot Pete are in that kind of you know pinky purpley and then Sandman's in his old green and yellow, and so's uh, Electro. So it made it funny that like they were kind of two by twos. Yep, that, that's not the only thing that was funny here. Well, it's it, when, when Spider-Man meets up with with them in 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 the issue, and then they're just like, "Ah, oh, it's a Sinister Six. 
who at that point had only existed in one appearance ever. Yeah. So, so I mean, for Spidey, it must have been pretty memorable. Well, sure. That issue was awesome. Spider-Man Annual 1, right? Amazing. Well, when the issue opens, Peter's late for a grad school cruise up the Hudson. So he arrives on the boat, and it's funny when he swings down onto the lower deck, on board is Mike Zeck himself, looking Mm -hmm. like pretty youthful 1980s-ish-y, kind of lamenting about uh, missing a deadline because he's on this cruise. So is this an overnight cruise? <laughs> it seems like it, right? I I was kind of trying to figure out how this. It's probably a dinner booze cruise. Then, yeah. yeah. But so Peter sees a flaming message in the sky from the Human Torch, because that's how they've set up meetings at the Statue of Liberty since Strange Tales Annual Two, way back in 1963. It's their spot. And let me tell you, it's not easy swinging boat to island. <laughs> but he almost makes it. <laughs> not quite. Gotta swim the last few laps. His comment about how the water tastes. And I'm like, uh-huh. you know, I don't know what it was like in 1980, but I can't imagine that the water around the yeah, Statue of Liberty is all that uh, good for you, but. I guess those spider powers take care of any uh, nasty crud. Spidey goes up top on top of Lady Liberty to meet the torch. But it's a trap. Well, I also enjoyed, Steve, the, the, the wizard, to show the team in action. It's a pretty silly one, but they take out two guards that found their equipment there. Oh, I mean, great. just so they can have some action scene. But what's funny is he li- the wizard leaves them with the flight disc. Spidey shows up, he sees two unconscious guards in a hovering Jeep, and he's like, ah, they'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what about when that Jeep stops hovering, or how are they going to get at it? Like, there could be no throwaway about, oh, I'll just, you know, get him out of the Jeep and leave him down below. Just leave the soldier hanging out of the, you know, <laughs> off the side of the now cockpit. You know, the, they got yeah, great suspension, they can drop like 30, 40 feet, no problem. Yeah, not with an arm hanging. You got to keep your <laughs> arms and hands inside the vehicle at all times, Andrew. But yeah, that one seemed a little callous for Spidey. Like, hmm? you know, normally the torch would have to wait quite a while if, you know, he just happened to be close by to the statue. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if he's out swinging somewhere else, it's going to be a long trip before he gets there. So, but, like, you know, I was playing real close attention, maybe too close attention to their plan. And I'm like, could they have pulled this off at another time? Or how is this plan specifically going to work better than some of their other plans? Mantlo is not one of the best at maintaining a consistent <laughs> supervillain motive or, like, goal. <laughs> it definitely, the goalposts definitely shift around <laughs> in this story and in the next one as well it's a great scene though like you said andrew of the, the the frightful four arriving on scene beforehand i like when they're done um incapacitating the guards and they 
are heading off to the statue to like head to work and set up for the trap and like they all have like their shoulder bags and they're like they're getting to work you know <laughs> they even uh, there's even some uh, I, i'm not looking at it right now but there's some sort of little caption about them sort of like looking at each other respectfully and like heading off to do their business it's funny and well the bags make it look almost like lunch pails or so you know like they're checking in for another uh, another shift at the factory but i always thought those discs were pretty cool for the wizard absolutely he could have really just you know revolutionized airline travel or something and saved Mm. himself a lot of headache well he would have had to compete with the beetle maybe because he would have been manufacturing his stuff too how about just shipping cargo like bags and stuff Oh, good point. Exercise bikes, too, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Andrew, waiting for that one last Christmas present to arrive. So Electro is disguised as the Torch. And this has precedent because he's using a suit that the wizard used in one of those old Strange Tales torch stories where the wizard was one of the Torch's primary adversaries. So we, we see this thing making another appearance and and being used uh, quite effectively to mimic the torch's appearance but uh, i don't know if he's got the eyes exactly right though yeah no well you want to protect the eyes (laughs) (laughs) from the fire i I like the commitment to the bit electro you know a known convicted felon multiple times doesn't take his electro mask off just pulls the (laughs) other one over like isn't he worried that maybe a seal won't it won't seal correctly or something well, I, like that? I think he wants pulls his, it right over those pointy dagger things. He wants as much stuff over his face as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Protect the eyes. This well, what happens when you take the mask off and he's like, "Oh, now it's all bent out of shape." Yeah, you you bent my fin. So Spidey's doing pretty good avoiding them when he figures out what's happening until the wizard comes up from behind him and slaps one of those gravity discs on his back. Then he gets all pasted up and then gets beaten up. The guys want to kill him, but the wizard has a plan. They're going to use Spidey's identity as a disguise to infiltrate and defeat the FF, the other FF. So... To impersonate Spider-Man, for someone else to get into the Spider-Man costume, first you got to beat up Spider-Man. You can't do that independently. Well, you don't want Spider-Man showing up and rumbling the plan. I mean, but... I guess Spider-Man could be swinging by, yeah. and then you're like your plan is done. All right. He doesn't know what kind of code, okay. but I did love the gimmick that the Pace Pop Pete's glue holds on his mask so they can't oh, yeah. reveal his identity and i'm yeah, like oh that's yeah. a clever bit and i just like how he's a just a complete toady like zero original thoughts <laughs> even admits he just he's basically a step above a henchman <laughs> one of the i don't know what grade that is but something about old pace he has so few ambitions you know? for like, sure Definitely doesn't even see himself as a leader. No. I don't even think he sees himself as like a, a follower. So much he's just like looking a... for a win, you know, <laughs> at at any level. And Andrew, before I send off that no prize to you for describing why the plan calls for Spider-Man to be incapacitated, uh, why don't they? Why can't they kill him? 
to to be able to do the Fantastic Four plan. Uh, now that they do have them, that's the reason think, given for keeping them alive. Yeah. Well, also, you know, they need. What if there's some information that he has, or some code, or something that they need to get out of him to effectuate their plan? Even see, there's plenty of time to kill Spider-Man. There's always time to kill. If we've learned that's anything. True. From reading 80 years worth of comic books is you can always kill the hero later that always works but you know what if he's got the secret knock or whatever speaking of a week later a week later after that issue hit the stands fantastic four number 218 hit the racks also written by guest writer bill mantlo with John Byrne pencils and Joe Sinnott inks. This is the issue after the big Galactus Sphinx throwdown, ending the whole Marv Wolfman, Terax, Galactus, Skrulls, Aging Ray. This was the uh, palate cleanser, if you will. I knew there was a method to your madness. I mean, I like Mike Zek as much as the next guy. Like, I love the first Secret Wars and everything, but... Man, burn and send it. It feels like uh-huh. we're leaving the Bronze Age, entering the Copper Age or something. It's so strange. It's not any, they're basically contemporaneous, but in my brain, I feel like a switch is kind of flipped a little bit and we're moving into something. Uh, I love more, it. more used to what I'm thinking about. And it might also be that I'm now looking at my. Um, Fantastic Four that those CDs, so I'm getting the full book with the original coloring and ads and all that stuff too. Nice. So maybe that's impacting it. But man, Burn, Fantastic Four, Spider Man, all you'd want is for him to put Paste Pot Pete back in his good outfit. You know, twenty <laughs> less than twenty issues later, Burn would come be on the book and be doing the inks and stuff, and the book would look very different. Uh, I really like these earlier issues that he did with the Senate inks. It really kept that house look of the Fantastic Four that was consistent all the way from Kirby right through Buscema and Pollard and, uh, you know, uh, Buckler and Perez and Byrne. Uh, it was Joe Sinnott's style was really the house style of the book. Bronze Age Beautiful. Sandman costume isn't great. I love the uh, Eisner-esque opening splash page, too, with the Baxter building silhouetted in the rain and Spidey crawling up the side of it with the issue's title written in between the floors. It's got a cool look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very uh, Neil Adams. Who got it from Eisner. <laughs> and... It should be something, though. It's not Spidey. It's a little simple. It's not Spidey crawling up the building, though. Uh, <laughs> it's the trapster disguised as Spidey, complete with these like suction cups on his hands and feet, just like the old live-action TV Spider-Man, Andrew. Yes, Nicholas Hammond. How come he wasn't in that last movie, Steve? Right? <laughs> they couldn't uh, open a dimension to his world? <laughs> we need somebody to take a picture <laughs> of the rest of the group. Because <laughs> he didn't really hey, have the science stuff, and did he? He made a good uh, Peter Parker, though. You had to admit, Steve. A little old, but yeah. 
you know, they're never going to see those suction cup hands and feet. The feet, that's what surprises me. You yeah. got something on your feet there. You got some slippers. Is, oh, I must have stepped in something. And new slippers? So the trapster, as Spider-Man taps on the torch's window and then clubs him when his back is turned. I like I how mean, the whole, he, our voices are the just, same under the mask. Don't yeah, worry yeah, about yeah. it. Funny that they even need to, in the text, uh, you know, account for that. So funny. Then the trapster, as Spider-Man, blinds the thing with a strobe light from his belt and then tricks him into electrocuting himself by punching the security system's power panel. You know, this is like Spider-Man when he was fighting the X-Men and winning in Secret Wars. Like, this this plan's going down pretty well. Yeah, two down, right? And the security system. Yeah. I would have never thought Pace Pop Pete was so flexible, too. He does all these agilic moves. <laughs> he's like, the man. Yeah, that jumpsuit. He's been hitting the gym. <laughs> yep, carrying around that paint can and, and the big hat and floppy clothes have just been holding them back. So with the security system down, the wizard, Sandman, and Electro can join the trapster to chase down and take out the invisible girl who is walking around in her, uh, you know, robe and nightgown and near and dear to my heart, making a reference to Dr. Sun. (laughs) Good old Dr. Sun. Burn stylish as always with his uh, outfits for the ladies. Then it's on to Mr. Fantastic in his lab. They're happy to be ganging up on him. He puts up a pretty good fight, though. But yeah, it, I don't know why they didn't keep up. They were doing so well with Pace Pop Pete as the yeah. as the fake Spider Man. They should have stuck with the plan. It ends up being Spider Man getting free and bursting in on the scene that turns the tide in favor of our heroes. All I gotta say, Steve, is you never leave your hover car parked upstairs with the motor running. And and the security guards hanging on it while it's hovering. <laughs> yes. They have a problem with this, leaving leaving these things behind. Electro Well, I guess if they would have left Spider Man behind, he could have got loose and webbed all the way to the FF and, and then stopped them. So Yeah, they should have had to bring him along. Yep. I'm surprised they didn't drag him inside with them. The wizard gets taken out by Electro accidentally zapping him when he's trying to zap Spidey. Mr. Fant- always a classic. They always point out how the villains, you know, they're not used to fighting as a team. It always is their undoing, Steve. They need more well, time training. They need a danger room. I like, the next page has an all-time classic. You bet. Mr. Fantastic has the cosmic dust vacuum for the Sandman. <laughs> I also like how the wizard... Uh, it's a delayed reaction after getting zapped, right? He's like, stands with them for a minute and poses, and then he like just drops. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then Electro gets contained in a rubber fire hose, leaving only the trapster who discovers, much to his chagrin, that the thing has regained consciousness. And... At least the thing doesn't punch him. No, he doesn't have to. He just calls him Pete a few times to make sure he knows his place. 
<laughs> and that's pretty much that. I gotta say, uh, in the a few pages later, the uh, ricochet monster in the hostess fruit pie ad puts up more of a fight. Than <laughs> does, what are you gonna do? Look, I like it. I like that they threw in a special bonus pinup because I guess they didn't have enough letters or whatever. But it was really cool. It was like a little half page. I kind of wish it was a full page. Yeah, definitely. Little Joe Sinnott half page pinup on the letters page. It's also the first letters page in a long time. Uh, in quite a few months on the FF. All right. Less than a year later, in December of 1980, through February of 81, ran Amazing Spider-Man 213 to 215, written by Denny O'Neill, with art by John Romita Jr., and inks by Jim Mooney an art team that I like very... I really like Jim Mooney on the Spider-Man world. I thought that he did the supporting cast and the, you know, uh, Peter Parker scenes and stuff in in that kind of continuing on in that pretty John Romita senior style. Uh, I have always liked Jim Mooney stuff, even back from his old uh, Supergirl Adventure Comics days. He can do a hair. Yeah, I thought it was funny. It was Ramita and Mooney again. Right? <laughs> so the wizard gets rescued from Rikers Island by a shadowy figure wearing a cape that emerges. Right. That comes out of the East River and manages to cover their escape with a tentacled sea monster. So. Like they use, he uses that monster, but it's like you can't use that. You still, still got to swim, right? Like you can't use the monster to get you onto the shore. <laughs> uh, it's not an Uber, Kevin. Apparently not. She she can only piss it off. She doesn't know how to direct it. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Peter is having costume problems. And Deborah Whitman is doing her best, Betty, to try and attract Peter, but he ends up meeting a Veronica babe who just moved in down the hall in his apartment building. And what was her name? Like, he doesn't he doesn't quite catch it. I was wondering who that was. For all his uh, Parker luck, he always has, like, half a dozen beautiful women tripping <laughs> over them. That's part of the Parker him. luck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a rough life, Peter. Yeah, damn that Parker he... luck. But he was in high school and had glasses and no dates. Come on now. You know, good looks, brains, and girls. Must be terrible. The wizard and the mystery shadow figure have targeted Spider-Man. And they draw him out with a giant mechanical spider that's housing explosives crawling up the side of the World Trade Center towers. Yeah, well, as soon as every other hero saw that, they're like a spider. Ah, oh, Spider-Man's got that. <laughs> Spidey neutralizes the threat and escapes, but the wizard and the shadowy figure track him, and they light his apartment building on fire while the tenants are all having a rooftop meeting. Spidey rescues the tenants by fashioning a bridge from a fire escape and getting them to a neighboring rooftop but he has to go back for a passed out wino and falls through the compromised roof 
unfortunately, in the burning building, he finds a waterbed mattress and uses it to protect their escape, but it's really a well-done, like, cliffhanger scene between issues that has a lot of drama and the whole, you know, burning building down around them and stuff, and it's... It has that, you know, the heroes going into the burning building really has that Bronze Age flavor to me. How was this issue not called Towering Inferno, Steve? (laughs) Next, the wizard and the mystery figure flood Riker's Island and rescue the Trapster and the Sandman, who were incarcerated in costume, I might add. (laughs) And... And it seems like the wizard rescued them because he just had to show them that he has this new gun that's going to defeat all their enemies. <laughs> all of them. Check Kevin. out the Super Soaker 5002. Yeah. It's got a stock. Hard for, me to, <laughs> hard for me to believe that Sandman, like, he's like, I can't swim and I can't breathe. And I'm like, <laughs> we've seen you trapped in a vacuum cleaner bag <laughs> and everything else. Like... I didn't know when this, I need all this, uh, all this, uh, air and everything to be a regular cat, but yeah, I I guess it's, uh, different strokes for different versions of Sandman. He's going to become a mud man. For reasons that, remember when he combined with the Hydra man and became that weird mud thing? For, For reasons that the readers don't yet know, an Atlantean scout alerts Namor, the Submariner, to the breakout at Rikers, and he goes, like, flying mad up to the surface world to New York City and breaks through the wall of Peter's hot new neighbor. A real threes company situation, Steve. Absolutely. Larry's I got mean, two dates going. One, one at the Regal Beagle and one upstairs at Larry's house. Jack's making dinner for the two of them. And Mr. Furley, a.k.a. the Submariner, shows up. (laughs) Well, this time it's Spider-Man showing up, because he's going to defend the hottie from Namor, right? (laughs) What what if Namor's in your place and just starts throwing all your stuff around? Well, that's he he takes the Spidey, like, directs the battle outside and up to the (laughs) rooftops. Well, I like how Spider-Man, like just instantly elevates the conflict like he throws the first punch with like a sucker punch and i'm like maybe you could have been like what's going on are you a good submariner or bad (laughs) submariner like what i'm not up with your continuity and like check in with them that way but we need our slugfest yeah where's your uh 70s suit that regulates you from going crazy like (laughs) And this is issue like two thirteen at this point, and or two fourteen. And Namor was just in Amazing Spider-Man in issue two eleven, so it's like they, you know, just crossed paths not too long ago too. I'm, they're really not giving, uh, you know, Spidey's not giving Namor the benefit of the doubt at all here. Well, you know, Spidey's never had that happen to him, where people <laughs> have assumed he's the bad guy, so. While they're up on the rooftops, that's when the Frightful Four show up. And the caped mystery figure is revealed to be Lyra, the Atlantean uh, female baddie who killed Namor's love, Lady Dorma. 
so they they didn't want the electro. Our electro was busy doing something else. Uh, electricity and water, Kevin, don't mix. So yeah, they, they tried that. They oh, but we needed that fight so you could have Spider-Man's most devastating comeback, Steve. Go hug a rope. <laughs> How do you even recover from that kind of sick burn? <laughs> well, there's no recovery for our heroes because the wizard shoots them both with his new weapon as the issue ends. While stunned, the trapster and the sandman, rough Namor and Spidey up some. They're like punching him, they're kneeing him in the face, and Spidey's going to be feeling that for a while when the Sandman <laughs> blasts There's his a... rear end with sand. Yeah. I mean, every time he poops for the next week, it's going to be like sandpaper coming out. That is a classic panel that you'll see reproduced in it. I was like, oh, and that's where that one's from. Yeah. <laughs> Usually Namor's know. taken out of it, though. You don't see the yeah. <laughs> trapster knee and Namor in the, in the chin, which is just as brutal. Really? Uh, Namor, super powerful guy, getting kneed in the chin by, you know, your 98-pound weakling. <laughs> well, they've just been shot by whatever that ray does, which we don't know. The, the, the Frightful Four then just leave namor and spider-man they're muttering about how they've left them in a state that's more interesting and somehow worse than death because like the well, trap the trapster and sandman want to take these guys out well the treatment sandman gave spider-man might be worse than yeah death. that's true <laughs> it, does, it won't it doesn't hurt so bad now but just <laughs> wait till tomorrow <laughs> But what happened is this beam, the ray from this gun, transferred Spidey's spider sense to Namor. So he's like going buggy with all this new incoming sensory input that he doesn't know what to do with. And Spidey is diminished by losing his early warning system. But really, that's the weapon that's going to destroy all their enemies? One that just switches the Spidey sense from whatever. Well, that's why he's the wizard, Steve, and you're just a podcast host. He has these plans <laughs> that you couldn't possibly fathom with your simple mind. So Namor and Spidey each go home to lick their wounds because like, they're not right. They're all like fatigued, like they had the flu and everything. Meanwhile, the Frightful Four plan their next move, which is to flush out Namor and Spidey and then take them out for good. Which, like, why didn't they do that when they just had them dead to rights on the rooftop? It's I, I guess they wanted, thought it was funny. They're like, well, watch them stumble around for a while. We'll get our kicks. They're evil, Steve. They know that. Peter was going to be mean to Deb Whitman and just use her <laughs> for <laughs> to crash. And that's the kind of creepy guys they are. Spidey also checks in on his attractive neighbor because he still doesn't get it, but he will. He gets sucker punched, attached to an anti-grav disc, and released out the window to his expected death. He's just going to sail up there into orbit. But Namor makes a timely arrival and saves Spidey from that gruesome and cold death. 
And then Namor and Spidey completely trash Sandman and the Wizard. Like, two of the most brutal panels I've seen in a long time. Namor punching the Sandman such that all that's there is his costume and everything else is just like projectile sand shooting out from every orifice of the costume. And then the wizard is being, you know how you like the double-fisted punch, Andrew? <laughs> like, this is the double-fisted punch with double feet, too, going right into, like, this wizard's larynx, smashing his head into the wall. And, like, in the next panel, it looks like he might not recover. Like, I'm thinking, is he okay? <laughs> yeah. There must be a name for this move. That helmet's got him well protected, although he's going to have a sore back the way he's bent over. Oh, God. And the Sandman looks also like, I'm not sure he's ever going to be able to recompose himself. Man, he just looks like vomit on the, on the ground, like a pile of sand vomit. The Trapster 2 gets taken out, but it's way less violent. Well, I mean, he ha- he would kill the Traveler yeah. <laughs> if he punched him with that. Like, there would be... It wouldn't be a bunch of sand shooting out of every part of the costume. Yeah, right. Then it's off to see Mr. Fantastic. Because he's one of the big brains of the Marvel U, and he can, and is able to, restore Spidey's... Spidey sense. And he makes sure that Namor knows that he would have done it for anyone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Really, anybody. Even someone I didn't know. No, No preferential treatment for Namor. Spidey goes back to check on the hottie down the hall again. And he even doubts his newly returned spider sense when it goes bonkers. He's still totally clueless. Well, you know, he's he's distracted, Steve. I mean, he's only human, and sometimes, you know, a pretty girl kind of gets your head going the wrong way. Until she tries to stab you with a carving knife. <laughs> and Spidey is so shocked by the reveal that she's Lyra that he's just, like, he's just gobsmacked. He just stands there humiliated, and he's going to let her go. But... Well, you know, he was defeated, Steve. Like, there's no... He got he was the original catfish victim. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But... And she lives in the water. It's even more appropriate. <laughs> but Namor shows up, and he isn't afraid to punch a chick square in the jaw. But he can use a window now? <laughs> they, well, they just patched the wall, Kevin. <laughs> they, like, the workers just left yesterday. <laughs> I like how they make it clear, though, that it looks like he at least went in the window and then punched her, as opposed to like a flying <laughs> punch from, you know, six blocks away to get some momentum going. But yeah. And then it's back to Atlantis with her for incarceration. The end. Yeah. And this one, it's a uh, a woman with a giant hairdryer defeated by Hostess Cupcakes. For anyone who's... Oh, I remember that one. <laughs> Who's curious about what's going on in the hostess? Not a fruit pie. This one's their their cupcake ones. So, you know, we think of the Frightful Four as a team that 
a non-team that's existed here or there in the Marvel Universe and in history and stuff. But after these appearances in 1980, going into the very beginning of 1981, the Frightful Four don't again appear until Fantastic Four 326 to 328, which is at the beginning of 1989, when the Frightful Four are the Wizard, Claw, Hydro Man, and Titania. Oh. It's it's the very end of the Inferno event, actually. Although in Deadpool number 35, 10 years later in 1999, there's a retcon story told by Christopher Priest that has Deadpool recalling one of his early, possibly his first adventure, where he and the Taskmaster and the Constrictor joined up with the wizard to form another iteration of the FF during this time frame, but that's just Deadpool tomfoolery, and it doesn't count in my book. But it's weird that way, because, like, I mean, really, the wizard, not just the Frightful Four, didn't make it into the mid-'80s, let alone out of the 80s, as a regular-appearing villain anymore. They were really the stuff of the 60s and 70s. Well, despite my love of Pace Pot Pete, Steve, I really don't think he's a A-list villain. Like, it's hard to continue to concoct scenarios where he's a credible threat to anybody. So. And well, you can't Spider-Man have the... comes back on the scene, like, after he's been out of it, and then, like, Trapster defeats him, but it's like, oh, you're, you weren't at the top of your game, so I'm going to let you go. <laughs> well, that, that was a weird '90s comic. Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of it, it has to do with just that, like comics are expensive, and a lot of pressure was started getting put once event comics were a thing. That like everything had to like the room for the villain of the month, especially a villain like Pacepot Pete or the Wrecking Crew, even. Uh, the frightful four burning buildings how many like you know it this seemed nostalgic to me to see a hero going into a burning building like you don't see that much anymore uh maybe it's the you know an issue opens with the after scene of that having just happened but that's not like the four page sequential drama of like being in the building and having a burning beam like that all seems you know somewhat trite or hackneyed now were not worth the real estate to such an expensive, you know, entertainment package. I, I, I miss the days when you could fight the Frightful Four and go into burning buildings and, and comics could breathe a little bit more in that way, I think. It's all about burning prisons now. <laughs> well, they also had all those silly, like, plot threads that might run 30 or 40 or whatever, however many issues that they would go that were just, you know, who's he dating or whatever late to this. Or I, I like those a lot too, because they weren't so modular and like, okay, this is going to be in this 12 issue run or whatever. It was just, eh, here's some goofy plot thread that we're going to pull on for a while and then leave alone. And maybe someone will get to it and maybe someone won't. For sure. Like even the Deborah Whitman thing, she stuck around for another 30-something issues of Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man before she had her breakdown 
And she was also in a number of issues of Amazing. So it's like she was around for a few, you know, few years. That's a slow burn. Oh, we got to work something in with John Byrne on that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Until number one goes number two in the woods. Make mine marvel. Later. Yeah, I think I'd choose to be number three over number two just for the baby. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a demotion, but you know, is it really? Uh,